Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 of the Great Commentary of Cornelius Elipedi, St. Matthew's Gospel, by Cornelius Elipedi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Whose fan, etc. The fan is that with which farmers winnow the corn, which has been thrashed, in order that the wind may carry away the chaff, and leave only the good corn behind. Fan in Greek, pethinon, that which, as it were, spits forth the chaff. It is derived from pateo, to spit out. The fan denotes the judgment of Christ, by which, as the fan, which separates the wheat from the chaff, he separates the good from the bad. The floor here does not signify the place, but rather the corn collected in the floor, which is cleansed by the separation of the chaff. By metonymy, that which contains is put for the contents. The floor then denotes the church, or the company of the faithful. The fanner is Christ the judge. The fan is his judgment, by which he fans and examines the thoughts, words, and deeds of everyone. The chaff are the wicked. The wheat are the just and the saints, whom he will gather into his barn. The kingdom of heaven, where with them, as with wheat, he will feed and delight the Holy Trinity the angels and all the church triumphant. John rises from Christ's first advent of grace to his second advent of judgment, and he signifies that this judgment is pressing on and is nigh at hand by saying, His fan is in his hand. So St. Ambrose on Luke 3, For although many hundred years may yet elapse before the judgment day, yet all those years, if compared with eternity, are but as a very little while, or as nothing. Moreover, Christ the Lord and Judge holds in his hand the spirit, soul, and life of all men, to take them away if he will, to judge, bless, or condemn them. He will burn up, etc. And if the chaff, how much more the tares. The wicked are here called chaff, because like chaff they are very light, worthless, and useless and good for nothing save for fuel of Gehenna. For unquenchable, the Greek has, as vesto, unextinguishable, eternal. Hence a stone which always burns is called asbestos. The figure of speech here used is meosis, for little is said, but much is meant. The fire of hell is asbestos, inextinguishable, not only because it cannot be quenched, but because it does not consume the wicked whom it burns. Nay, it excruciates them living and feeling with endless torments. The heir of origin is here condemned, who thought that the pains of hell would not be eternal, but after the completion of the great cycle of Plato would come to an end. There is an allusion to Isaiah 66:24, Their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And 33.14, Who among us can dwell with the devouring fire? Who shall dwell in everlasting burnings? Where, see what I have said, St. Chrysostom gives examples. Do you not discern that sun which ever burns and is never extinguished? Have you not read of the inanimate bush which was burnt with fire and not consumed? And St. Austin says, Now I have proved sufficiently that there are animals which are called parastae, 
because they can live in the fire and be burnt without being consumed, in pain without death, by the marvelous power of the Creator. And if any deny that this is possible, they are ignorant of Him, by whom whatsoever is wonderful in all nature is affected. Think of then, and dread this fire of hell, which no water, no tears can extinguish. Yea, though all rivers, all abysses, all seas were collected together, they could not quench it, which all demons, all creatures, with all their powers, could not even diminish in the very least degree. Because the breath of the Lord, as a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. Then cometh Jesus, etc. Then, when the Baptist was stirring up all to repentance, and baptizing as a preparation for receiving the grace of Christ, then, I say, Christ came, that him whom he had commended when absent, he might point out being present, even as the day star goes before and indicates the rising of the sun. From Galilee, or as St. Mark says from Nazareth, where he had lived with his mother in a private station until he was thirty years of age. Then he came to John, that he might be by him declared to be the Messiah, that is, the teacher and redeemer of the world, and that he might, upon John's testimony, inaugurate his public office of teaching and bringing in the evangelical law for which he had been sent by the Father. To be baptized, you will ask, what were the causes of John's preaching and baptism, and why did Christ wish to be baptized by him? There was a threefold reason, says St. Jerome. One, that because he was born a man, he might fulfill all the righteousness and humility of the law. Two, that he might give a sanction to John's baptism. Three, that sanctifying the waters of Jordan by the descent of the dove, he might show the coming of the Holy Ghost to the laver of the faithful. Four, a fourth reason was that by the Holy Spirit's coming down upon Christ in the form of a dove, and by the Father thundering from heaven, he might afford himself an irrefragable testimony. So St. Jerome. 5. Christ, by receiving baptism from John, would allure all men to his own baptism, and would show them its benefit, viz. the coming and gift of the Holy Ghost. 6. Christ took our sins upon him. Therefore, as guilty and a penitent, he stood before John, that he might wash away and cleanse our sins in himself. Whence Nezianzen says, John baptizes and Jesus comes to him, sanctifying even him who baptizes, that especially he may bury the old Adam in the waters. And again, Jesus ascended up out of the water, drawing and lifting up with himself a drowned world. 7. That Christ, who had determined to found the new commonwealth of Christians, in which none should be admitted except by baptism, should himself their chief be baptized, that he might in all things except sin be made like unto his brethren. That is a famous saying of Cato, Submit to the law which thou thyself has enacted. 8. As Abraham formerly, by God's command, instituted the sign of circumcision, so Christ would give a new pledge to his church by sanctioning baptism. Thus St. Thomas thinks that when Christ was baptized, he instituted the sacrament of baptism, not in words but in deed. For then there appeared all the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, in whose name we are baptized. The Father was manifested by his voice, 
the sun appeared in Jordan. The Holy Ghost was seen in the form of a dove. But it is more correct to say that Christ, when he was baptized, only directed attention to his own sacrament and its matter, water, but that he instituted it shortly afterwards when he began to preach publicly. For he does not seem to have instituted baptism publicly at the time he said to Nicodemus, coming to him privately and by night, except anyone be born of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this is the opinion of St. Chrysostom, St. Augustine, St. Gregory Nazianzen, and others, who at the same time assert that Christ by his baptism sanctified all water, and by his corporeal contact with it, endued it with regenerating power, not as though he infused water into anything physical, but only a moral quantity, because water was then, ipso facto, by the intention of Christ, designed for the sanctification of men, by washing them in the sacrament of baptism. Tropologically, Christ by his baptism, at this time, wished to teach us that a holy and a perfect life must begin with baptism, and that this should be the great object of all who teach others, such as doctors and preachers. But John forbade him. John recognized Christ by a secret instinct and revelation of God, by which he knew him as to his face, which he had seen and known thirty years before, when he leapt in his mother's womb for joy. You may ask, why then was there a sign given to the Baptist by which he was to recognize Christ, viz. the descending and abiding of the Holy Ghost upon him? I reply, this sign was given to the Baptist, not that he should for the first time know Christ, but that it should more fully confirm him in that faith and knowledge, and that by the same, as by a sure testimony of God, he should point out and commend Christ to the people. I have need to be baptized, etc., that is, to be spiritually washed from my sins, and perfected by the Spirit of thy grace. Have need here does not signify an obligation of precept, as though the Baptist was obligated to receive the baptism of Christ, for this precept of baptism was given and promulgated by St. Peter on the day of Pentecost, and therefore after John's death. Some gather from this place that John was soon afterwards baptized by Christ himself, as were also the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saints Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the Apostles. This is stated by St. Evidius, who succeeded St. Peter in the chair of Antioch, in an epistle of his titled Tophos. In favor of this idea are also Nazianzen. Christ knew, he says, that he would himself shortly afterwards baptize the Baptist. Also St. Chrysostom, who says, John baptized Christ with water, but Christ baptized John with the Spirit. Whence the author of the imperfect commentary says, It is plainly written in apocryphal writings that John baptized Christ with water, but he baptized John with the Spirit. Abilensius thinks, on the other hand, that John was baptized by Christ, and he proves it by the marveling of John's disciples, who soon afterwards told John that Christ whom he had baptized was himself baptizing, and that all men were coming unto him. For this would have been needlessly told to John if he had been baptized by Christ, and he would have given this reply to his disciples, so that it is a doubtful point whether John was baptized by Christ or not. 
and John answering said, etc. It becometh us, i.e., me to receive thee to confer baptism. Others understand us in this way. It behooves us who are the teachers to set an example in ourselves. Nothing, however, apparently unimportant must be omitted. I shall institute baptism. It is the part of him who commands to do before others what he commands. Whence St. Luke says of Christ, Jesus began both to do and to teach. This is righteousness, saith St. Ambrose, that what you wish another to do, you should yourself first begin, and encourage others by your own example. Whence St. Gregory, of true humility, has ever sprung secure authority. Moreover, not only Christ receiving, but John conferring baptism, fulfilled all righteousness. Because contending in humility with Christ, he suffered himself to be vanquished, by being, as it were, put upon an equality with Christ. And so he, as it were, being vanquished by Christ in humility, vanquished Christ by yielding to him and obeying him. As St. Dominique, wishing to give his right hand to St. Francis, whilst Francis opposed it and strove to take his left, said at length, You overcome me in humility. I conquer you by obedience. It is very probable that in the act of baptism, John pointed out Christ to the people, since the form of John's baptism would be something of this kind. I baptize thee in the name of him who is to come, or believe in Messiah who is about to come. This is inferred from chapter 19.4. But it would seem that when Christ came and was being baptized, John would say, This is Messiah, of whom I said that he was about to come. St. Jerome observes, Beautiful as it said, suffer it now, that it might be shown that Christ was baptized with water, and that John was about to be baptized by Christ with the Spirit. And by and by, Christ might say, Thou baptized me in water, that I may baptize thee in thine own blood shed for me. For so it behooveth us to fulfill, Arabic to perfect, all righteousness. Instead of righteousness, the Syriac has all rectitude, i.e., whatever is just, right, holy, and pleasing unto God. And it is not right to decline or depart from such things, even though they seem lowly and abject, even though they be not provided for by any precept, but are matters of counsel only. But again, all righteousness is whatsoever God the Father hath commanded, so vetable. For that is righteous which God sanctions and commands, and it would seem that as God the Father commanded Christ to die, so also he gave him a precept to submit to John's baptism. Hence, secondly, the gloss says, Humility is all righteousness, humility which subjects itself to all superiors, equals, and inferiors. On the contrary, pride by which a man prefers himself to all, not only inferiors and equals, but superiors, is all unrighteousness, for it takes away their just rights and deprives them of the subjection which is their due. For as in every act of righteousness, i.e. of virtue, humility comes in, and that a man submits himself to reason and virtue, so pride mixes itself up with every act of sin, and that a man prefers himself and his own will and desire to the law and will of God. Humility therefore fulfills all righteousness, because it is the head of all right and justice, which a man owes to God, his neighbor and himself. He submits himself to God by religion, to his neighbor by charity. He subjects the body to the soul, 
the soul to the law of God. Wherefore the humble hath peace with all, the proud with all hath strife and war. At this present day, how many lawsuits and contentions are there between clergy and prelates for places, titles, precedents? How both sides perniciously contend for what is due to each. To the great scandal of the laity, and with little gain of victory to either side, for what doth thou gain if thou overcomest in a lawsuit, save some small worthless point of honor? And in the meanwhile, makest a far greater loss of reputation, peace, and conscience. Learn from Christ, O Christian, to believe in, yea, even to be ambitious of the lowest place. So shalt thou be exalted with Christ and deserve the highest. For Christ, subjecting himself to John, was declared by John, yea, by all the Holy Trinity, to be greater than John, to be the Son of God. Say therefore with Christ, Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. St. Ignatius, the founder of our society, was a follower of Christ when he gave this golden axiom. With even the least, let no true Christian fight, but still to yield be ever his chief delight. For the grace, honor, and glory of a Christian is humility, that is to say, to yield to suffer himself to be vanquished, to yield the place of honor to another. Wherefore, the greater is he who is the humbler. For, as St. Gregory says, Pride is the place of the wicked, humility the place of the good. Christ here teaches us to follow an ordinary life, not to seek exemption from the common law and lot, and to be accounted as one of the common people, according to the words of Ecclesiastes, If thou wouldest be famous, be as one of the flock. Yea, descend to the lowest place, and prefer all men to thyself. 3. All righteousness, i.e., the highest justice. Thus God says to Moses, Exodus 33, I will show thee all, i.e., the highest good, namely myself. For the lowest degree of righteousness is to submit oneself to a superior. The middle degree is to submit to an equal, the highest to an inferior, even as Christ submitted himself to John. Christ, I say, who is the holy of holies, bowed his head to John for baptism as those seeking from him a sanctification and purification, like the rest who were sinners, who came to his baptism. Excellently says St. Gregory, Let the humble hear that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Let those who are lifted up hear that pride is the beginning of all sin. Let the humble hear that our Redeemer humbled himself, being made obedient even unto death. Let the proud hear what is written of their head, he is a king over all the children of pride. The pride of the devil was made the occasion of our ruin. The humility of God was found to be the assurance of our redemption. Let the humble, therefore, be told that when they abase themselves, they rise to the likeness of God. But let it be said to the proud, when they lift themselves, they sink down to the likeness of the apostate angel. What then is more base than to be haughty? What is more exalted than humility, which, while it pulls itself in the lowest place, is united to its maker in the very highest? St. Gregory says elsewhere, This is the highest righteousness and sanctity, when we are, in respect of our virtue, the loftiest, in respect of our humility, the lowliest. St. Thomas Aquinas, being asked by what mark a really holy and perfect person might be known, answered by humility, by contempt of himself, contempt of honor and praise, 
by bearing ignominy and reproach. For if he said, If you see any one when he is neglected and despised, and has others preferred before him, show a sense of pain or indignation, to be of a downcast countenance, to turn up his nose, wrinkle his forehead, you may be very sure that he is not a saint, even though he should work miracles. For when he is neglected, he shows his pride, anger, impatience, and so makes himself vile and contemptible. For all righteousness, i.e., every increase of righteousness, that is to say, of virtue and sanctity, Christ indeed could not increase in interior grace. For with that he was always perfectly filled from the first moment of his conception in union with the word. But he showed daily ever greater and greater signs of virtue, and ever more and more humbled himself. For Christ came down from heaven into the virgin's womb, from the womb to the manger, from the manger to Jordan, from Jordan to the cross, as he would teach us in Psalm 84, 8. They shall go from strength to strength. The God of gods shall be seen in Zion. So St. Augustine, I would, my Dioscorus, that thou shouldest in all piety subject thyself to Christ and the Christian discipline, nor fortify for thyself any other way of reaching and obtaining the truth than that which has been fortified for us by him who knoweth the infirmity of our footsteps. For as much as he is God, and so it is said of that most famous orator, Demosthenes, that when he was asked what was the first rule to be observed in oratory, he replied, pronunciation. And when he was asked what was the second, replied, pronunciation. So if thou shouldest ask and ask again concerning the precepts of Christian religion, I should answer that nothing else but humility would make you perfectly fulfill their obligations, although perchance I might be obligated to speak of other duties. To this most salutary humility, which that our Lord Jesus Christ might teach us, he humbled himself. To this, the greatest adversary is, if I may say so, a most uninstructed science. Lastly, he fulfills all righteousness, who endures the unpleasant ways and manners and tempers of others, according to those words of St. Paul, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He who loves those who hate him, blesses those who curse him, does good to those who injure him, honors those who despise him, vanquishes his enemies by the warmth of his love, who with Paul desires to be an anathema for his enemies, and to be all things to all men, that he may gain all for Christ, he is truly humble and is like Christ. Then he suffered him. That is, when he heard this, John yielded and baptized Christ. If God received baptism from man, no one need disdain to receive it from his fellow servant, says St. Jerome. And St. Ambrose says, Let no one refuse the laver of grace, when Christ refused not the laver of penance. Beautiful too, says St. Bernard, John acquiesced and obeyed. He baptized the Lamb of God and washed him in the waters. But we, not he, were washed, because for washing us the waters are known to be of cleansing power. End of chapter 3, verses 12 through 15.